Section one of Mrs. Diamond. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by K. Hand. Mrs. Diamond by Anne Isabella Thackeray Ritchie. Book one, chapter one, Empty Houses. The lark that Tira Lyra chants with hay, with hay, the thrush and the jay are summer songs for me and my aunts while we lie tumbling in the hay jog on jog on the footpath way and merry hent the style a a merry heart goes all the day your sad tires in a mile a winter's tale before the game of chess begins to be played the heroes and heroines of the coming catastrophe are to be seen in orderly array there is nothing to tell in which direction the fortunes of the boards will drift. The kings sit enthroned by their spirited partners, the little guards of honor are drawn up in serried lines, prepared if necessary to fall for their colors. The bishops are in their places, giving the sanction of the church to the dignities of state. The impetuous knights are reigning in those fiery steeds that are presently to curvet, in rayward leaps, all over the field. The castles, with flying flags, flank the courts at either end. And so, in storytelling, when the performance begins, the characters are to be seen, quietly drawn up in their places, and calmly resting before the battle. There are, as we all know, four castles to every game of chess. If I look at my checkered plain, I see on one side a gray fortress standing in its wide domain, guarding the lands that lie between the hilly lake country and the Scottish borders. At the other end of my story, where the red court is assembled, a shabby little stronghold is standing in a walled garden not far from Paris. As for the other two castles, they are both empty ones. They belong to Colonel John Diamond of Wimple Street, and of Crowbeck Place in Lancashire. What a strange, indefinable feeling there is about empty houses. The London house was blind-drawn, dingy, and in order. The portrait of the late Mrs. Diamond hung in the drawing-room, with the shrouded candelabra. She was painted full length in blue satin, going to a ball. In the back drawing-room, fitted with its many couches, faded cabinets, brass rails, screens, Parian statuettes, hung the colonel himself in his uniform. It was a half-finished picture, in watercolor, begun by Mrs. Diamond many years ago. The drawing represented a good-looking man with black mustachios which have since turned gray. She had left it behind when the family went off to the colonel's country house one summer, and the poor lady never came back to finish that or any of the other things she had begun. She had been a feeble, incapable woman, nervous and jealous by nature, and her death was more of a shock than a sorrow to her husband. The children cried and then wiped their tears. The colonel looked very grave, went abroad all dressed in black, and sent Joe and Tempe, his son and daughter, to Bolsover Hall, their uncle's house, for a time. And then the town house and the country house were shut up, both together, instead of alternately, as heretofore. The colonel often went abroad. He found his homes very sad. But when the country house was closed, it never seemed quite so deserted as Wimple Street. The echoes were less startled. The doors did not creak so forlornly. Crowbeck Place was not far from Mr. Bolsover's more stately hall, where the young people were staying. They often liked to go over and stray about the place garden, and eat the unripe fruit and pick the flowers, and Mr. Bolsover used to fish in the grounds, and Miss Bolsover, the late Mrs. Diamond's sister, 
used occasionally to spend a day opening old cupboards examining drawers and store closets and seeking for mysterious articles which she wished to put by for her niece she said she also read any letters that happened to be lying about for the colonel crowbeck place stood on the slope of a meadow shelving to the lake joe and his sister liked it ever so much better than the hall they delighted in the silence the liberty the sense of ease that seemed to meet them at the very gates of the old place at the hall everything was fenced and clipped and boxed up including tempe and joe themselves whereas here they were free the land the sky the sunlight the water each element seemed a new happiness to them their aunt fanny discarded the elements altogether from her system of education for her water meant eau de cologne land was the family estate air was what came in through the carriage window and fire if it shone in the shape of sunlight was to be carefully fenced off with spotted net and parasols their aunt mrs bolsover was the very contrary to her sister-in-law miss fanny she loved exercise she liked it straight and serious a waterproof and a road by an iron railing suited her temper best she was grim but the young folks had more sympathy for her than for miss bolsover with all her graces i wouldn't be aunt fanny not for a thousand pounds says joe she spends her life screaming spying making mischief and writing poetry and she would like you and me to do the same how can you exaggerate so said tempy tempy was very serious and never laughed joe was a lanky boy with red hair and an odd humorous twinkle in his face tempy was a diamond people said and took after her father's family as for joe nobody could tell exactly what he was he was not a bolsover nor was he like the diamonds and he certainly took after nothing that anybody held up for his edification families are odd combinations they seem to have an existence which is quite distinct from that of each individual member of which they are composed we know of enthusiastic families of grasping families of matter-of-fact families of others desponding cheerful noisy fanciful there is also a family standard of right and wrong and of discretion and indiscretion which is quite independent of private feeling and conscience some families will talk where others preserve an absolute silence some families make jokes where others weep the diamonds were by some people called a cranky family they went their own way they were precise and confiding serious and discreet the bolsovers with whom they had intermarried were people of the world more easy-going and more conventional too a diamond might do wrong but he would not call it right a bolsover at the worst made things pleasant with a laugh and so got out of the difficulty colonel diamond's wife had been a bolsover mr bolsover's wife was a diamond the unmarried miss bolsover remained at one time she was living not with her own brother who rarely left the hall but with her brother-in-law the colonel who spent eight months of the year in london and four more at the farm or place as it was called by country folks tarndale water is not the least beautiful of the cumberland lakes although it is comparatively little known the swallows have found it out and dart hither and thither along the banks tourists come there from time to time not in shoals but sparingly and by chance now and then a solitary figure toils round the head of the lake by the hall a little pathway across the sloping fields leads from the hall to crowbeck an old building made green with delicate ivy and frothed with the white spray of the convolvulus its porch is heavy with purple clematis the brother and sister as they talk are traveling along the sloping field early one summer morning fragrant woods and meads and hedges seem trembling with life and song 
The whole place is a thrill. The swifts go darting hither and thither. Thrushes and larks are singing their summer jubilee. Beetles, gnats, midges are buzzing in the air and droning in chorus. The fishes are darting among the brown shallows. The encircling hills seem nearer now than later in the day. Everything is awake and astir and alive with that indescribable life of the field and the waters. The cows are cropping the long grass down by the waterside. The dew is shining on the delicate leaves. One single drop is brimming in each emerald trefoil cup. The white and lilac weeds are sparkling in the sunlight. The banks cast long shadows into the water. The queen of the meadows is scenting the air with her fragrant white blossom. A great honeysuckle head rises above the hedge. Joe and his sister go struggling across the long grass, following each other. Joe climbs a stile built according to the fashion of the country, where slabs of slate are let into the wall. The little calves in the adjoining field start off running, with their long tails arched as they fly past. Tempe screams like her aunt and stands hesitating on the top of the stile. Don't be afraid, Tempe, says Joe. You are much more likely to eat the poor little calves than they are to eat you. Encouraged by this assurance, Miss Tempe jumps and goes plodding after her brother towards the old boathouse, whither they are bound. It stands among pines on a narrow tongue of land jutting out into the lake. We are late, says Tempe. There will be a scene. Let them rave, says Joe, sententiously. Joe, I can bear it no longer, says his sister. I've written to Papa. You may read my letter if you like. And she pulled a paper out of her pocket and put it into his hand. Bolsover, July 24th, 18. My dear Papa, I am afraid it will be a disagreeable surprise to you to get this letter. It is to implore you to send for us at once. I thought you were coming home, and I waited patiently, but now that you have put us off again, I can be silent no longer. We do so hate being here. Aunt Carr would be kind enough if Aunt Fanny would let her, but she never lets anyone alone. She watches us and suspects us if I don't know what, and never believes a word we say. She burnt some verses only yesterday that poor Charlie Bolsover had written for me. She reads all our letters. She is having him sent away again in fresh disgrace because he played cards down at the hotel. I would scrub, I would eat dry bread, I would do anything to please you if only you will send for us at once. But I will not submit to Aunt Fanny. Indeed, this is no childish outburst. I cannot bear injustice, no more can Joe, and we long to come to you. Please write at once, and we might come by the next train. Your miserable Tempe. Joe whistled and pulled a long face as he read. Is not this rather strong? he said doubtfully. He was not without some admiration for his sister's style, but he felt that the colonel might justly expect some more definite grievances to justify him in sending for them. It is only the truth says Tempe, and Papa will understand. I have a great mind not to go to the Vivians today, Joe, she said gloomily and walking as fast as ever she could. You can do as you like, said her brother, stooping to drag up the old boat that was disporting itself in the sunshine tethered by its train. Hello, she is full of water. Give me that tin kettle, Tempe. A tin kettle was lying in the dew-spangled grass, and Tempe flung it to her brother. He began bailing the water with great energy. The water splashed into the shining lake, the boat rocked, the fishes fled in shoals, alarmed by the disturbance. A few minutes more and the little boat was zigzagging across the lake in very workmanlike fashion. Joe was rowing, Tempe sat steering, 
When the boy looked up, he could see his sister's red hair and round pink face against the soft landscape. Joe himself, in his ragged straw hat and flannel shirt, was not an unpicturesque figure. He was pale and slight, with very speaking blue eyes under shaggy eyebrows. He had heavy red locks that he sometimes tossed back with an impatient jerk. By degrees, Tempy forgot her grievances. A worse humor than Tempy's might have been charmed to peace by the sweet sights of that early morning. The heavens and the earth were shining and astir. A thousand ripples were flowing in from the far end of the lake. The sunny slopes were dotted with farmsteads, stretching up, on one side, to where the long moors rolled purple with the heather, while on the other, behind the sweet pastoral country, lay, like dreamland itself, the long line of the mountains, quivering through veils of light, in that region where heaven and earth meet, the boundary not of one horizon alone, but of all we hope to see in life. Lovely, indefinite, beyond our reach, those distant crests speak of more than all the summer glory round about. After a time they came to a little landing-place, green and overgrown with ivy. One or two boats are floating there among the weeds and clanking their rusty chains. An owl-tower had been converted into a boat-house, towards which Joe paddles, skillfully steering the old punt to the steps. The sound of a distant bell comes floating along the water. "'Late!' says the boy. Then he leaps to shore, leaving his sister to follow. They hurry off as hard as they can go to breakfast." They meet a bronzed figure coming along the gravel drive, with a post-bag slung to its shoulders and a battered straw hat. This is Mrs. Wilson, the postwoman of the district. "'Good day, Mr. Diamond. Good day, Miss Diamond. There's a letter for you up at the hall. A furrin stamp for the colonel.' She trudges on. Joe sets off running toward the house. Tempe hesitates for a moment, then calls after Mrs. Wilson. "'Here is a letter, Mrs. Wilson. Will you post it for me?' "'Twon't go till the night, miss,' says the postwoman. "'Never mind. Take it,' cries Tempe hastily. "'Tonight will do. The deed is done. Aunts, breakfast, letters, Uncle Bolsover, the times, were all to be found in the big dining-room at Bolsover Hall, punctually, by nine o'clock every morning. Joe and Tempe are ingredients less accurately to be counted upon. Today they find Aunt Fanny, as usual, reading her own and everybody else's correspondence. Her head is a little on one side, and she is softly preoccupied, and her white fingers beat a gentle tattoo upon the papers. Aunt Carr is pouring out strong tea with a serious countenance. Uncle Bolsover seems absorbed in the local paper, of which he actively climbs column after column every morning. There is a dead silence as the young folks come in. Evidently something is amiss. Tempe opens her eyes, looks round and says, "'Good morning,' in a loud, inquiring voice. "'Good morning, Tempe,' says Aunt Bolsover, dryly. "'Good morning, my dear,' says Aunt Fanny, with a sort of what-next intonation. "'Where is my letter, Aunt Fanny?' says Tempe, aggressively. "'Mrs. Wilson told me there was one from Papa.' "'Here it is,' says Aunt Fanny, daintily turning over the heap before her. "'I opened it by mistake,' and she looked full at her niece as she spoke. "'I wish you wouldn't open my letters by mistake,' says Tempe, throwing the envelope back. Since you have read it, Aunt Fanny, you can answer it and tell Papa why. I opened it by accident, Tempe, says Aunt Fanny, with a musical laugh. You need not look so tragical. I have not read your letter. Dear, dear, says Uncle Bolsover, looking very red, don't let us waste time over discussion. We ought to be off at ten, and you, none of you, are dressed. I suppose you have been to see the Charlie boy off, 
said Miss Bolsover, still daintily dealing out her papers. Her reticule was a sort of lion's mouth into which they disappeared by degrees. Announcements, warnings, denunciations. No one ever measured the contents of that velvet maw. Do you mean Charlie? We drove part of the way with him, said Joe. We didn't want to miss the lunch, so we came back. I dare say, Tempy, it's half-past nine. It's time to get ready. Poor boy, says Tempy gloomily, pushing her cup away. It is time for us to amuse ourselves and for him to go off alone to that horrid place. Well, well, let us hope Charlie will like his tutors when he is used to it, says Uncle Bolsover, the mediator. I was at a private tutor's once myself, sent there in disgrace, too. I assure you, I never was happier in my life. We had some capital fun at Tickles, I remember. My dear Fred, said Aunt Fanny, we hope for something better than fun for our Charlie. Uncle Bolsover's remark was deemed inappropriate by Aunt Fanny, but it comforted Tempy, who got up with a dramatic toss of the head and left the room to get ready. The more angry Tempy seemed, the more sweet and silvery was Miss Bolsover. She undulated up the broad staircase after her niece, who bounced up to her own room, banged the door, burst into tears, rang violently for her maid, wiped her eyes, and then proceeded in hot haste to put on a very smart, tight, braided costume, which distracted her by degrees from her troubles. When she appeared ready to start with an ivory parasol in her hand, it would have been difficult to recognize the calico nymph of the lake in the fashionable young person bustling along the passage on high heels. Joe was also completely transformed, not for the better, and Uncle Bolsover had assumed knickerbockers for the occasion. The carriage was ready to take them to the station. The train was waiting to convey them to the feast. It was a long journey thither, to the place where a hospitable old castle opened its ancient halls once a year to the neighboring villages. As the train flew along, Tempe's spirits improved, and Aunt Fanny herself became less irritatingly amiable. Aunt Bolsover, bolt upright, sat looking through the window. Uncle Bolsover ran his usual comment upon things in general, addressing an old gentleman, the only passenger besides them in the carriage. Very fine, but very flat all about here, sir. Very flat, indeed. End of section 1